welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, William Bradford and the Voyage of the Mayflower. begin our story of the Mayflower in just a moment, but please note for clarity, I have referred to most place names using the modern designation for most locations. On November 11, 1620, a 100-foot-long cargo ship called the Mayflower entered what is today known as Provincetown Harbor, virtually on the tip of present-day Cape Cod. This was the culmination of over two months at sea for 102 immigrants, originally from England. Some of this contingent intent on establishing their own religious settlement in the New World, free from persecution from the British crown. Their Atlantic crossing was difficult, their time spent mostly below deck, lashed by gale-driven waves that left them and their clothes and quarters in a miserably damp and chilly condition. Their diet of hardtack, dried meat, and watered-down beer, little comfort. The captain, Christopher Jones, found an appropriately deep and secure location and anchored the ship. Especially exhausted after the previous two days of unsuccessfully attempting to reach the Mayflower's intended destination, the mouth of the Hudson River, Jones and his crew quickly went below deck, intent on some much-needed rest. Under clear skies and temperate weather, 16 male voyagers resolved to use a smaller longboat to explore the shores of the surrounding harbor. One of these men was 30-year-old William Bradford, a typical Mayflower passenger. Influenced at a young age by critics of the Church of England, Bradford was a member of a group who were known as separatists for their desire to separate from the C of E believing this entity to still be tainted by its Catholic roots. At age 18, he initially fled to Holland, residing in Leiden with other spiritually like-minded emigrants, but feeling that their children would be too heavily influenced by Dutch society, this congregation and other separatists resolved to establish their own community in what was then known as Virginia, Such a venture required official permission from the royal government, but so enthusiastic over colonization over as much territory as possible, the crown, after much negotiation, agreed to allow an outpost near the mouth of the Hudson. The area then known as Virginia bears no resemblance to the boundaries of the present-day American state. This designation signifying any potential additions to existing colonies like Jamestown no matter how far north. In a subsequent memoir known as Of Plymouth Plantation, Bradford wrote about the moment when this heavily armed but grateful group first landed on Cape Cod's sandy beach. 
they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all of the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. Bradford did not even begin writing his Mayflower travelogue until 1630, but his mere survival until this date was statistically fortunate. By the end of the winter of 1620, half of the 102 original passengers on the Mayflower were dead. A similar percentage of crew members also died, the remaining survivors facing the bleak prospect of a similar fate. It was only through the resolve and ingenuity of men like William Bradford that this dwindling contingent survived. William Bradford was born in March of 1590, and Osterfield, Yorkshire, England. The exact date is unknown, although he was baptized on March 19th of that same year. Many members of his family died when he was a child, and Bradford was orphaned by the age of seven. Sent to live with two uncles, he spent most of his time as a farm laborer, and his leisure activity consisted of reading and studying the Bible and other classic philosophical tracts. Intellectually curious, he was exposed to various sermons of area preachers who radically suggested that the Church of England was still inappropriately influenced by Catholicism. His uncles considered such beliefs as heresy, but Bradford was not deterred by their hostility. Continuing to attend sermons by various figures who espoused either purifying the Church of England or even separating from it entirely— Bradford made the acquaintance of William Brewster, the postmaster of the nearby town of Scrooby. Alienated from his own family, William Bradford began to perceive Brewster as a father figure who strongly reinforced Bradford's religious beliefs. Brewster was an advocate of separating entirely from the Church of England and a high-profile member of the spiritual contingent of Yorkshire known as Separatists. Such an outlook was perceived with great hostility by both the British monarchy and the hierarchy of the Church of England, both entities powerfully intertwined. Although he implemented some ceremonial reforms of Catholic religious rituals upon assuming the throne in 1603, James I considered the demands of the Puritan and Separatist movements as an affront to his authority and vowed sanctions against individuals who espoused such beliefs. The Anglican Church routinely identified and harassed any congregations that embraced such anti-authoritarian concepts, frequently fining or even imprisoning those that were involved in such activities. This persecution was so emphatic that the Scrooby fashion of separatists took to meeting in secret at Brewster's home. Eventually, this congregation was discovered. Its members, including William Bradford, prosecuted and fined the result of belief among these religious dissidents that only emigration to a more tolerant environment was their only option. Even such emigration, under the oppressive controls of the state, was illegal. It took three attempts before members of the Scrooby congregation were able to escape from England. Many of its members were caught during the first two attempts and imprisoned briefly, including Bradford, who successfully made it to Amsterdam in August of 1608. Eighteen, with no relatives in Holland, Bradford domiciled with the family of William Brewster. 
Residency in Amsterdam was brief, the city expensive, not particularly tolerant of immigrants, and professional prospects minimal. Within nine months, many of the English separatists made their way to the smaller and more hospitable town of Leiden, Holland. Personally, William Bradford's life took a turn for the better when, upon attaining the age of 21, he was able to collect a modest family inheritance. He then purchased his own home, set up a cotton-weaving business enterprise, and achieved enough relative prosperity to marry another Englishwoman, Dorothy May, in 1613. But, like many other separatists in Holland, in 1617, with the birth of their first child, a son named John, the Bradfords began to consider the possibility of leaving Europe entirely and settling across the Atlantic. Other like-minded former members of the Scrooby congregation began to liquidate their assets and actively plan for this migration. However, obtaining both official governmental permission and the transportation necessary to implement such an ambitious operation was a difficult and involved undertaking. This process was complicated by the fact that William Brewster had seen fit to print and distribute in England and Scotland inflammatory pamphlets critical of the Anglican Church. Brewster, one of the few separatists with actual governmental and diplomatic experience, might have been crucial to such negotiations, but his incendiary texts forced him into hiding to avoid arrest and deportation to an English government actively seeking his return and prosecution. Two other separatist congregants, Robert Cushman and John Carver, were designated to enable the group's migration. Even in the 17th century, investment interest in the New World was rampant, and a merchant and financier by the name of Thomas Weston began discussing logistics for a ship, a crew, appropriate equipment, and provisions with Cushman and Carver. On their own, the separatists had already purchased a ship designated for passengers called the Speedwell. Initially, the Speedwell was to sail from Holland, meet up with whatever second ship Weston provided at the English port of Southampton, and together the entire group with two ships would head west. The initial deal with Weston called for the emigrants to work part-time on behalf of him and his investors in such pastimes as fur trapping and fishing. Roughly half of these proceeds would eventually pay back all expenses. After seven years, the proceeds would be divided and the settlers could keep whatever homes and properties they resided in, free and clear. Only a third of the congregation, at most 125 people, intended to sail in the first tranche of settlers, some wanting an initial group to determine the viability of such a venture, others unable to raise enough cash to participate. Most of the group were like William Bradford, who had sold all of his assets and eager to get on with the venture, every day another day of depleting, dwindling provisions. Others, like the actual pastor of the group, John Robinson, stayed in Leiden, where a sizable number of separatists would remain, awaiting developments from the eventual settlement. This cautious perspective proved prescient when Weston began to behave deviously, claiming that a change in developments required his investors, known as the merchant adventurers, to radically alter the deal. He maintained that the inability of the settlers to negotiate a prosperous fishing monopoly in the vicinity 
mandated a much more onerous agreement. His backers would only provide the necessary funding if the colonists agreed to spend all of their time working on the investors' behalf. Even worse, the adventurers insisted other settlers with no religious inclination be included on the journey. The presence of this group, eventually nicknamed the Strangers by the separatists, was especially ill-suited because they were headed by a purchasing agent designated by the adventurers, Christopher Martin, a disagreeable and uncooperative individual who refused to work with Cushman and Carver. This lack of coordination only added to the confusion surrounding the potential voyage. Nevertheless, those separatists intent on the journey, including Bradford and his wife, headed to the Dutch port town of Delfshaven and a berth on the Speedwell. At the end of July 1620, an emotional farewell took place from Holland especially for the Bradfords, who were leaving their three-year-old son behind with relatives, understanding how potentially perilous their journey might be. Upon arriving in Southampton, the travelers were heartened by the news that a ship called the Mayflower had been procured by Weston. The ship was much larger than the Speedwell, at over 100 feet long. The captain, Christopher Jones, an individual that the group eventually greatly respected. The ship was not in particularly good shape. Space on board was cramped, and at 25 feet wide and 180 tons, it was actually smaller than most ships that made the transatlantic voyage. Additional delays occurred when various accrued debts had to be paid off by the emigrants, the adventurers refusing to pay off harbor master fees and other miscellaneous bills. This required the sale of provisions and hardware until the requisite amount was raised and paid off. Finally, on August 5th, the Speedwell and the Mayflower left Southampton, all of those aboard hopeful that the worst of their challenges were behind them. Unfortunately, this optimism was quickly contradicted when the Speedwell began to leak and take on water to the extent that both ships were forced to return to Plymouth, England the only prospect of continuing the voyage, the consolidation of both people and cargo aboard the Mayflower. Some separatists like Cushman decided to remain behind and return to Leiden. Unfortunately, the unpleasant Christopher Martin chose to sail. On September 6, 1620, the Mayflower, on its own, left Plymouth and headed west. The original August departure had some advantages, including an arrival in mid to late autumn, which allowed for minimal disease-causing insects and the planting of new crops. Leaving in September meant arriving after the onset of winter, a much more foreboding prospect. But the Mayflower's occupants, frustrated by months of delays and financially sensing that it was now or never, finally left England behind. There were 102 passengers plus crew, all intent on a new life in the new world. The passengers were situated on the deck immediately located underneath the open air of the main deck. While they could hear waves and smell seawater, they were unable to view the horizon or the surface of the sea around them. Tossed practically on top of each other in makeshift compartments created by cloth curtains, the separatist contingents strived to get along with each other, realizing that the stress of the voyage would only be increased 
by personality conflicts. Benign weather for the first part of the trip made such cooperation easier, although some crew members, and especially Christopher Martin, remained abrasive and unreasonable. One of several pregnant women on the ship, Elizabeth Hopkins, went into labor relatively quickly into the voyage. Although there were two men, a surgeon barber, and another individual who could best be described as a medic on board, it was the community of female passengers by necessity experienced in the process of childbirth that collectively helped to deliver a perfectly healthy baby boy. Parents Stephen and Elizabeth gratefully named him Oceanus. The initial stretch of temperate weather and calm seas suddenly changed approximately halfway across the Atlantic. High winds and large waves now battered the ship from all angles. This stress eventually cracked one of the main beams below deck, damage that again prompted discussion as to whether a return to England was appropriate. Luckily, among the various tools initially brought on board was a large screw jack used to lift timbers in the framing of new home construction. It was implemented to stabilize the beam and hold it in place, an improvisation that allowed the voyage to continue. But conditions only worsened. The small ship confronted with waves that at times reached 100 feet, individuals tossed around below decks by the tremendous power of storms in the open ocean. Clothes were impossible to keep dry under such circumstances, the captain finally furling up the sails and allowing the Mayflower to be driven in whichever direction it was pushed by the waves. Although disease and illness seemed inevitable under such conditions, it was a particularly hostile crew member who initially became sick and died during the voyage, a development that the separatists perceived as divine retribution. As conditions remained harsh, this contingent clung to their faith, spending a great deal of time singing religious hymns in unison. Only one other individual, a 21-year-old, became ill and died during the crossing. It was only a few days after this individual was buried at sea that on November 9th, crew members spotted land, eventually identified as Cape Cod. Although the two ship's pilots on board previously traveled near both Virginia and New England and could have guided the Mayflower to its original destination, the mouth of the Hudson River near present-day New York City, Captain Jones eventually decided otherwise. The ship had survived its transatlantic journey, but the late autumn weather made for challenging conditions heading south off of the coast of Cape Cod a dangerous network of shoals and sandbars difficult to navigate in even the best of conditions. Jones decided that Cape Cod, with a ship filled with fearful passengers and exhausted crew, was close enough. His original plan called for his return to England as soon as the passengers were appropriately settled on shore, and he was in a hurry to get on with that process. He turned back in a northerly direction and eventually made his way to the western interior of the Cape Cod Peninsula, finally anchoring in Provincetown Harbor. An urban legend maintains that the Mayflower came ashore because it was running out of beer, the only liquid still safe to drink as stored water quickly went bad at sea. In fact, Jones began rationing beer because he wanted to conserve what he had left for his return voyage. 
This premature landing outside of territory designated by British authorities presented an immediate problem. Since the stranger contingent on board was inclined to dispute any attempts at the separatists controlling the governance of the colonists once they landed, assertions were made that as a result of the ship landing in an undesignated territory, they were free to do as they wished and were not obliged to respect any other authority. To address this situation, several charismatic individuals on board the ship composed an agreement that set out specifically what laws and guidelines should be followed by the community. Containing ideas generally suggested mostly by William Brewster, this agreement, known historically as the Mayflower Compact, also resulted from some of the formerly aloof strangers like Christopher Martin understanding that for the colony to financially succeed and for the adventurers to get any kind of return on their investment, all of the settlers needed to work together. Any rebellion or chaos by a minority meant collapse of the effort and possible death of every member of a potential settlement. Even more pragmatic was the selection of John Carver as the first governor of the colony. Carver, wealthy and already a major contributor to the effort, was a separatist, but level-headed and humble, acceptable to the likes of Christopher Martin, who the separatists had no intention of accepting in any position of authority. Forty-one males on board signed this agreement a kind of communal compromise to underline the need to cooperate with each other or perish. Ultimately, the Mayflower Compact is historically perceived as one of the seminal documents in American history, its importance reinforced by the ultimate success of the community it established. November 12th, the day after some of the settlers briefly explored the shores of Provincetown Harbor, was a Sunday that required a religiously mandated day of rest. On November 13th, four pieces of a small sailing ship were removed from the hold and taken to the edge of the shore where carpenters attempted reassembly. While this went on, the rest of the passengers also came ashore, thrilled with the opportunity to experience fresh air and even to clean clothing in a nearby freshwater pond. Because the smaller boat was damaged during the voyage, its reassembly took much longer than anticipated. Among some of the men on board, including Bradford and Miles Standish, an experienced soldier officially in charge of matters involving potential conflict with natives or even obstreperous settlers, there was a great impatience for some kind of organized exploration of the nearby territory. Carver was much more cautious about such a venture, concluding correctly, as it turned out, that indigenous residents might be lurking close by, might also be quite hostile, perhaps to a fatal extent. Ultimately, the governor relented. On November 15th, 16 men, each armed with a musket, sword, and what purported to be 17th century body armor, came ashore in a longboat and in mid-November forced to walk at low tide and shallow water to reach dry land. They were eager to find a significant river, arable soil, and hoped to interact positively with any indigenous locals they could find. Although he was at the head of this landing party, Standish had no idea where he was going, and he was not even close to an appropriate body of water. The group did see a half-dozen natives who promptly fled attempts by the colonists to pursue unsuccessful. 
They continued south, heading to what is now Truro, Massachusetts, finding remnants from both previous brief European explorations, a native burial ground, and the most productive discovery of all, a cache of corn kernels and dried corn still on the cob, potentially usable for agriculture. The group then turned around and headed back to their landing point, where they were retrieved and returned to the Mayflower. It was not until November 27th that the small sailing craft was seaworthy enough to commence on the next exploratory voyage. This boat was approximately 30 feet long, single-masted, and contained 34 individuals, 10 crew. The weather was continually inhospitable, all aboard freezing from exposure to shallow water and cold temperatures, much colder than were typical in England. Six inches of freshly fallen snow complicated the initial return to the area where corn was previously retrieved, but a persistent search and excavation provided even more of this material. But this expedition was cut short by the cold, and the boat soon returned to the Mayflower. Within a few days of this return, another child was born on the Mayflower, and an adult died. By December 6th, Captain Jones sent out another shore party, this time with only a few crew members and 17 colonists, including Carver, Standish, and Bradford. Temperatures were consistently in the low 20s or lower, ocean spray quickly freezing on whatever gear the expedition members were wearing. They first explored area around Wellfleet and then proceeded to Eastham, camping for the night inside a hastily assembled barricade of tree limbs, a roaring fire in its interior. Early the next morning, as the settlers prepared their breakfast, their first encounter with the natives occurred, announced silently with a barrage of arrows. After a brief skirmish involving very little actual sighting of the attackers, the colonists were able to chase their assailants into the woods. No one was injured, but numerous arrows were retrieved, remarkable weapons over two feet long, with feathers at one end and sharpened stone or deer antler at the other business end. Captain Jones deferred to his two pilots and remained behind on the Mayflower. One of these pilots was familiar with the region and with a particular destination in mind, set sail without any stops on land. Repairs to the boat proved inadequate when the rudder became ineffectual, the weather deteriorating into rain and sleet. When the mast actually cracked into pieces, all on board resorted to rowing. Pilot Robert Coppin was reasonably sure that he was headed to a previously observed harbor he believed appropriate for settlement. But in such conditions, he became unsure of himself. With night descending and conditions worsening, a decision was made to go ashore at the first appropriate landing spot and build a bonfire, the alternative frostbite and even death. The next day, Saturday, December 10th, dawned sunny and much more benign than the preceding days. The men quickly determined that they were on an island that today bears the name Clark Island, John Clark, the Mayflower pilot who first set foot on it. It was situated in a calm body of water, almost completely landlocked except for a narrow entrance through two peninsulas. One of these peninsulas barely avoided the night before. This was the location that Coppin remembered, and it did seem ideal for the settlers' needs. They spent Saturday replacing the mast with an appropriate tree they cut down, 
drying out in front of the ongoing fire and pulled it together after several stressful days. Sunday was, of course, another leisurely day, but on Monday they began to reconnoiter the harbor in earnest. It was certainly deep enough for a ship the size of the Mayflower, and eventually, upon landing on shore, they found large areas suitable for agriculture, fresh water in several streams, and no obvious signs of any kind of recent habitation by natives. Additionally, although at least one sizable boulder was certainly situated in the area, there was no mention by Bradford in either of his two personal accounts of this excursion of a landing assisted by a large rock. This seems to have been an invention of subsequent residents, much to the delight of future chambers of commerce. Today, an elaborate arched temple-like edifice encloses a rather unimpressive large rock embossed with the date of 1620, the alleged landing spot of America's pilgrims. Having found an appropriate settlement site, a small vessel rapidly returned to the Mayflower. Arriving late in the afternoon of December 12th, the optimism of Bradford and the other adventurers was quickly stilled by the grim news that Dorothy May Bradford was dead having accidentally fallen overboard and drowned. Historical speculation eventually toyed with the idea that Dorothy's death was intentional suicide. She was offshore, away from her son, in a clearly forbidding climate, facing an uncertain future. On the day of her husband's third departure in a short period, another child, seven-year-old Jasper Moore, passed away. The confluence of these powerful events could have overwhelmed anyone in the best of circumstances, which these clearly were not. This was another event that Bradford never specifically discussed in his written works. Most likely, like all experiences within his congregation, this tragedy would have been accepted simply as God's will. Life went on. The Mayflower headed in the direction of what eventually would be referred to as Plymouth Harbor, the name stemming from their launch point in England. Several spots along the shoreline, like Clark Island, were considered and rejected until the ship reached the southern part of the harbor area near the landmark rock spotted earlier. The area was an obvious location with the rising hill near the shoreline providing not only a spectacular view of the region, but an obvious location for protective fortification. Although the Mayflower itself could not anchor in the immediately shallow shoreline, there were various brooks and streams that could supply all of the freshwater needs of a settlement. Their smaller boats would be perfectly stored in a marsh at the edge of one of these larger streams. Although fortuitous, there was something strange about the land in this immediate location, appearing to have been cleared by human hands, but with not a soul anywhere in the vicinity. It wasn't long before the settlers determined why this was the case. Bradford laid a road of finding a multitude of human bones and remains scattered above ground, clearly a massive epidemic, having rapidly wiped out the significant village on the shores of, of what was a thriving indigenous settlement. Although the pilgrims did not know it, this had only occurred a few years earlier, as early as 1605, Crude maps drawn up by other explorers depicted a significant native community at what was now Plymouth. This may have been the cause of the local hostility to any interaction with the newly landed party, a justifiable fear of exposure to whatever killed their former neighbors. 
Having located a suitable spot, the emigrants attempted to plan and build their new colony. The highest priority was construction of suitable fortifications and homes to provide shelter from the relentlessly cold weather. But storms and the exhaustion and illness of many of the settlers greatly hindered this plan. With the Mayflower anchored at a considerable distance offshore and only approximately 20 healthy souls even capable of the hard work necessary, it took two weeks to build the first structure. A 20-square-foot thatched hut of logs and branches stuck together with clay in a fashion similar to homes built in England. This crude success was juxtaposed with the dire circumstances evident among those languishing on the Mayflower, the death toll now averaging one person a day. The dead were quickly buried without any formal acknowledgement or markers. The main focus was on building as many dwellings as quickly as possible. While it was always Captain Jones' intent to return to England whenever this was expedient, with much of the contingent on board ill and the only real shelter during the continuous stormy weather, he realized that this plan in the short term was unrealistic. Within months, various ailments killed at least half of the immigrants and a significant number of crew members. Although some of the strongest personalities, like Christopher Martin, perished and William Bradford fell seriously ill, Men like Miles Standish and William Brewster remained unscathed, providing some degree of stability and encouragement. But as the death toll increased, another concern preoccupied the settlement. Natives who were aware of their presence were occasionally spotted surreptitiously observing their behavior and again made absolutely no sign of any willing interaction and might merely be assessing the increasing collective weakness of the colony, if only to eventually attack in massive numbers and wipe them all out. With that in mind, in mid-February, the remaining work detail performed the remarkable feat of installing several large artillery pieces in a fortified structure, these cannon weighing half a ton, dragged from the Mayflower. Although 19 homes were originally planned for the settlement, death and lack of manpower now limited that to nine such structures. By March 1st, the winter weather receded, and warmer weather signaled the onset of spring. On March 16th, the inevitable occurred. Although the incident did not unfold as the settlers previously feared, as described in a pamphlet entitled Mort's Relation, a description of the first year of Plymouth Colony, Co-written by William Bradford and another settler named Edward Winslow, with work suspended for a regularly scheduled meeting about specific plans for the defense of the settlement, the meeting participants became aware of a native looking down at their group from a nearby hill. This had happened previously, but whenever an inhabitant gestured or even attempted to make contact with these previous visitors, the natives fled. This time, however, the lone native began to purposefully walk directly towards the settlement. Without hesitation, he walked past the crude lane of houses and seemed headed directly towards the shelter that protected the colony's women and children during such an emergency. Without overt hostility, some of the armed settlers got in his way and made it clear he could not enter the shelter instead of bristling or running away. This remarkably tall, long-haired individual, dressed only in an animal-skin loincloth, stood to his full height, saluted, 
and probably understanding the effect he would elicit cheerfully, spoke the words, Hello, English. After they probably picked themselves up off of the ground, the men excitedly offered their guest not food because of its current scarcity, but alcohol in the form of what is known as aquavit. The urban legend is that instead their guest requested beer, knowledge of such a drink startling in and of itself. As the man introduced himself in an occasionally indecipherable language, began to explain both his background and details concerning their current location, they felt obliged to provide him with cheese, biscuits, a very small piece of roasted duck, butter, and custard. His name was Samoset. He was not from the region, but actually originally from what the colonists recognized as Maine. His first interaction with English fishermen in Maine enabled his quasi-understanding of the language. Samoset went on to explain that the area they called Plymouth was a previous native village known as Patuxet. It had been completely ravaged by plague, the result the myriad bones and remains clearly evident to the settlers. Samoset identified the area as under the control of Massasoit, the sachem or leader of a tribe known as the Poconokets, and today as the Wampanoags. Massasoit resided in the nearby Narragansett Bay area of Rhode Island. As his listeners hung on every word, Samoset also explained that another tribe, the Nossets, controlled the area of Cape Cod in the vicinity of the corn cache first discovered near Provincetown. They were especially hostile to Western Europeans after an encounter with an English captain named Thomas Hunt, who previously briefly came ashore on Cape Cod and captured at least 20 Nossets and sold them into slavery. Most importantly, Samoset indicated that he would send an additional small group of natives, accompanied by another individual who spoke better English than he did. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Mayflower. Information for this podcast came from the books Mayflower, A Story of Courage, Community, and War by Nathaniel Philbrick and The Mayflower by Rebecca Frazier. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige. And if you like bite-sized biographies, please tell a friend. Mm-hmm.